This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 13th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. States seem at a loss to deal with the opioid crisis and the impulse of state governments toward greater control of the relationship between doctors and patients while also pushing for harsher prison terms may actually make problems associated with opioids worse. Greg Newburn of Families Against Mandatory Minimums comments. How have states dealt with opioids as a topic, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing these huge increases in uh, rates of addiction of people reporting to emergency rooms and things like that. What is the law response? Well, it varies by state and it varies by the phenomenon that they face. Several years ago, the problem was uh, prescription painkillers, particularly oxycodone, and to a lesser extent, hydrocodone pills, Vicodin and, and whatnot. People were diverting these prescription painkillers to the black market and then trading them, selling them, and, and obviously abusing them and overdosing on those. Um, so that was a problem that had to be dealt with. And part of the problem was pill what they call pill mills, these uh, kind of quasi-medical offices where you could walk in, describe some symptoms, and then walk out with um, a bottle of Vicodin or, or, or Oxycodone, Oxycontin. And so that was a problem. And those pills were being diverted to the black market, and people were dying. In Florida, where I work, uh, it was about seven people a day were overdosing on OxyContin or, uh, or hydrocodone. And so the, the policy response was, let's do something about the pill mills. Let's, you know, so we in Florida created a prescription drug monitoring program. Other states have done the same thing, uh, where you can monitor how much uh, of, of a particular kind of painkiller a patient can get. So you know whether someone is is being given too much or too little uh, relative to other patients in similar situations. So that was Florida's response. That was the response from several other states was to uh, crack down on pill mills to make it more difficult to to get painkillers. And that actually worked for a couple of years. At least in Florida, the number of oxycodone deaths dropped. The number of hydrocodone deaths dropped. uh, The the amount of painkillers that were being diverted to the black market fell. And it, it seemed like a success. The, and, and the same thing happened across the country in, in a lot of states that face similar problems. The problem with that is you had massive numbers of people who were addicted to opioids. And that didn't go away. And not, you, not just addicted, but, but chemically dependent. That's right. Uh, uh, both chemically dependent and addicted to, uh, to really potentially dangerous opioids. Uh, and when you didn't fix the underlying addiction and you didn't establish any sort of rehabilitation programs or treatment programs or uh, you know, medication-assisted therapy, a lot of times harm reduction wasn't part of this. It was just let's crack down on the supply. So when the underlying demand didn't go away, the inevitable response from, from the folks who were addicted to these opioids was to find them in other avenues. Their, their preferred way so far that we've seen across the country is with heroin. So folks who used to go to pill mills and get Oxycontin or, or hydrocodone pills now would go to heroin dealers to get heroin to get roughly the same fix. It's, it's cheaper, uh, and it achieves the same high, gives them the same uh, experience as, as what they had before. It's also considerably more dangerous. Uh, so how does the fact that there are pretty significant criminal penalties associated with uh, possession of heroin, uh, how does that change 
people's expectations, people who may have been patients at one point or are uh, maybe never were, but are addicted and would like to find a way out of that situation. Well, in a lot of ways, the criminal penalties don't change their expectations at all. Uh, they're, these folks are incredibly short-sighted. The thing that they're focused on is getting their next fix. They're not pouring through statute books to find out what the penalties are for uh, either buying or selling heroin or pills. They're looking to get high. And uh, so in a lot of ways, when you focus on the penalties side of things, you're, you're sort of missing the, the boat on, on the policy response. You're, you're doing something that may feel good, but it's not going to work. Now, on the other side, like it, again, in Florida, we have what's called a Good Samaritan law. So if someone is overdosing and you call 911, you can't be charged with criminal possession of drugs. The problem with our law is it extends only to criminal possession of drugs. So you can be charged with homicide or manslaughter or drug trafficking or any number of other significantly worse uh, crimes, but you can't be charged with drug possession. Um, And in Florida recently, we've seen state attorneys charge friends and boyfriends of of heroin users who've overdosed with, with manslaughter after they've called 911. If our goal is to reduce the number of people who actually die from heroin overdoses, uh, there was a, a story in the Jacksonville Times Union where they went and talked to a bunch of researchers, and the consensus was this is exactly the wrong thing to do. All right. So what ought to be the policy response? There, is a, there are a large number of people who are addicted, chemically dependent on these drugs. They find uh, that their supply from a legal market, these are higher quality, presumably. They are of a standard uh, amount of the drug. They could be controlling their own intake to some degree. What ought to be the policy response to help deal with that problem? Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a good question, and it's a complex question. It's a complex issue, and, and in a lot of ways, you can't say that there is a single policy response that's going to solve a problem that's taken decades to to develop and impacts potentially millions of people in in very subtle and different and often unique ways. Uh, One person's addiction is not another person's addiction, right? One person's substance abuse problem is not another person's substance abuse problem. Some people will spend their entire day seeking out heroin. Other people can use heroin in the morning and go to work or use methadone and go to work and nobody will ever know that they're addicted. Uh, So it's very difficult to say this is the policy response. But we know that that there are considerable numbers of people who have substance abuse problems who are chemically dependent on opioids, and the number of people who die from those overdoses is increasing at a rapid rate. And we also know that a lot of the problem is not prescription painkillers anymore. It's a, it's a way that a lot of people become addicted, but it's not necessarily what's killing people anymore. What's killing people now is heroin, and specifically heroin cut with fentanyl and other you know, fentanyl derivatives. Um, and so the policy response to that, I think, has to take into account all of those, those nuances. And from my perspective, it, it has to en- encompass some harm reduction. Uh, and, and to their credit, the President Trump's task force on opioid, uh, the, his opioid task force, made reference to some harm reduction stuff. They talked about Good Samaritan laws. They talked about expanding treatment and, and rehabilitation. And those things are, are important because you have to get to the underlying demand. If there's a demand for opioids, it will be supplied. And if it's supplied by the black market, you're going to have inconsistent standards, heroin cut with fentanyl that, that, that users may not know about, so they don't know how much to take in order to, to stay alive. Um, and so those things are, are going to continue. 
So the policy response needs to incorporate some harm reduction elements. And from our perspective, which you know, FAM at least, uh, on the sentencing side, we think it's an error to impose these harsh mandatory minimums for uh, what, even what you'd call drug trafficking because it doesn't distinguish between these folks. Right. Drug trafficking, uh, you think of a man in a white suit sitting at a desk with a gun, uh, but uh, the people inevitably who are trafficking, uh, many of them are, in fact, just trying to make money while they are feeding right. their own habit. One thing you see over and over again in the opioid crisis or in people's when, when people talk about the policy response to the opioid crisis is, well, we need to help the user and we need to punish the dealer. So let's hammer the dealers, let's put them in jail, but we need to give treatment to the users. The problem with that line of thinking is that there is no bright line distinction between users and dealers, particularly in the opioid underworld. A heroin user one day is a heroin dealer the next, and a heroin dealer one day is a heroin user the next. They're often the same people. Uh, users will share drugs with their friends. One person might go buy a lot of heroin for a group of people and they'll share it for a while. And some people have addictions and then they, uh, and they sell in order to keep those addictions going. Classic example for years has been people will go and, and buy pills uh, or get legal prescriptions and then sell those on the black market for more than they paid for them, take the money and then go buy heroin with it. It's just a classic buy low, sell high. Uh, almost a, as a middleman to keep their addiction going. Well, for those people, if you're a user who's selling to keep your addiction going, what is the policy response? Is that person a user who needs treatment, or is that person a drug trafficker who needs prison? Well, there's no way to know that in advance, which is why policy responses like mandatory minimums, where they say if you possess X amount of something, then you are by definition a trafficker and you need to go to prison, they fail to capture the nuances of what's actually happening on the ground in, in the drug underworld. Uh, for example, uh, there was a bill that passed last year in Florida that creates a new mandatory minimum for fentanyl trafficking. And it creates, it's, it's based on the weight of fentanyl that is possessed at a, at a given time. And the weight in Florida is four grams. Well, that's a massive amount of fentanyl. Four grams is a massive amount of pure fentanyl. But the bill also says that a mixture that contains fentanyl is, is covered. Well, anyone who follows the, the opioid crisis knows that one way that fentanyl is distributed is in counterfeit pills. So these guys have these pill presses and they make counterfeit oxycodone pills or hydrocodone pills and they put fentanyl in them because it's cheaper. Well, under this bill, about eight of those pills is considered trafficking. So if I am a, a pill user and I'm seeking out oxycodone pills on the black market and you sell me eight pills that have any amount of fentanyl in them whatsoever, and those pills add up to more than four grams, I, as the user, can be charged with trafficking. It's very, very similar to the crack cocaine distinction that uh, was used for sentencing years ago. Right. And, and when you have these, these incredibly low trafficking thresholds, you inevitably catch people you don't intend to catch. Uh, this happened in Florida with oxycodone. It happened with hydrocodone. We were catching thousands of just low-level users who had a handful of pills, 15, 30 pills that they purchased, and we were sending them to prison for three years or 15 years. We're going to do exactly the same thing with fentanyl starting in October. And, it, and again, it fails to capture the nuances. Is this person a user? Is this person a dealer? Or is this person a trafficker? And I'll say one more thing about that. In 1999, Florida established uh, mandatory minimums for drug trafficking. And when the law passed, the proponents of that law said these are for major players in the drug trade. They described them as people who would 
grow three barns full of marijuana or bring in a boatload of cocaine into the Miami. People with overhead. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, and maybe people, and they established fines as well, $500,000. The idea being, we're looking at major kingpins, Pablo Escobar types, El Chapo types. And, and over the last 18 years or so, that has been defined downward from major trafficker to anyone who deals drugs. And drug dealing should be a crime to me, and I think that there should be criminal penalties attached to it. But the idea that every single person who distributes any amount of narcotics is by definition a trafficker both flies in the face of of common sense and logic and the way we know, the things that we know about the drug underworld. And it also betrays the original intent of of Florida's law and I think a lot of the laws around the states. Uh, So I think we have to be careful to to be able to distinguish between actors in the drug trade. Is this a user? Is it a user dealer? Is it a, a user who's being exploited by some other person to, uh, to be a mule or something or to sell drugs to keep an addiction going? Is it a dealer who is uh, selling pills on the side because he, he or she can't make ends meet? And you know, if you could solve that, maybe you could solve something else. Or is this a pure, for-profit, ex- exploitative, just run-of-the-mill what everyone would think of as a drug trafficker. And those distinctions are never made in statutes that, that uh, create mandatory minimums, and they are absolutely what we have to do if we want to get a handle on the opioid crisis. Greg Newburn is with Families Against Mandatory Minimums. We spoke at the State Policy Network annual meeting in August. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 